good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Jude. In particularly, we will be looking at verses 14, really 14 and 15 and 16 will be dealt with next week. But just as a means of introduction to place us in the context of our book, um, obviously in the book of Jude, there are these false teachers that have made their way in. They were designated for this condemnation for long ago, as the scripture says in Jude 4. And these people have essentially come in, they've infiltrated the church, and as they've infiltrated the church, they have brought false teaching that has reviled the Lord Jesus Christ. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality, and they have denied our only master in Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, these men have become hidden reefs at our love feast. They are... They are uh, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They are waterless clouds. All that to say, they are in essence a woe to the church. They are people that come in and that disrupt and create discord inside of the local church. All that to say, as we look about, as we look at those individuals, I think even considering the condemnation that they were long ago destined for, it's a good reminder as we look at verses 14 and 15, really what is that condemnation? And it is meant to be an encouragement to the church. You can imagine if you're a member of a church that Jude is writing to and you're considering all of the people and all of the dismay that has been brought by these false teachers, perhaps a point of great confidence is to know that God will really judge them, that they will not get away with it. Perhaps it is that the church saw them creep in unnoticed, but Christ has not seen, Christ has not been blind to their perversions. Instead, he really has taken notice and he really will judge. And so my hope this morning is to lay out to you the day of the Lord, the great day, the day of the Lord, the day of dread, the day of glory or ways that we see this described in scriptures. But my hope is that we will see it in really two ways. First, we will see it from the perspective of those who have not fled to Christ, that they might find refuge and hope and comfort and rest in him. We will see it first from the day of dread perspective, as I think Jude is really laying out for us here. And then I do want to look at it from the perspective of a day of glory, because the reality is, saints, none of us should be looking at this day and dreading. Instead, we should be looking forward to this day and saying, oh, hasten the day that the Lord Jesus will come, that he will conquer all of his foes, that sin and death will be made his footstool, and that he will take us to be with him forever. And so it's my hope this morning that we see it as a day of dread, but we delight in it as a day of glory. With that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Jude, starting in verse 14 and making our way through verse 16. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jude, starting in verse 14, says this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray together. Father, what a fearful day we come to examine this morning. 
But Lord, how sweet it is to know that you have turned this day into a day of glory for your church. Lord, it is a fearful thing to hear that you come to execute judgment on the ungodly. For Father, we know who we were. We know that we were aliens. We know that we were separated from you. We know that we had trespassed the law of God, that we in our essence, in our works, in our words, in our, in our motives were ungodly. But by the grace of Christ, you have changed us. You have pronounced us righteous through his finished work. And so Father, we no longer dread this day. We anticipate this day. We long for it. And Father, we do pray your kingdom come and your will be done. And Father, as we approach this moment, I pray that you would give us a sobering view of our Lord. Lord, not one that provokes fear in a sense of cowardice, but instead a sense of fear and reverence, that we look to him as our true king, as the king of all the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that we would be emboldened and strengthened in our task here below, that we would fight for purity knowing that our king is coming for us, that we would evangelize knowing that our king is coming for us, and that above all, we would worship knowing that our king is coming for us. It's the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we walk through this, I really want to spend a brief moment walking through the first couple of words in verse 14 to give somewhat of a perspective. I imagine if I were to gloss over this, I would be asked a thousand questions on the back end. So I do want to provide some clarity on the front, but then I really don't want to get lost completely in the weeds there. I want to deal with the text at hand, but you'll notice in verse 14, it says this, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. So before we deal with the prophecy in and of itself, let's deal with the prophet. This text clearly attributes this prophecy to Enoch, the seventh from Adam. The reason that it mentions the seventh from Adam is because Cain also had a son named Enoch and he was making quite clear, not that one. Enoch is the seventh from Adam, not to be confused with Enoch, Cain's son. Enoch was one of the first prophets. He lived a prophetic life. We even see this in the way that he named his children Methuselah. Methuselah's name essentially warned of an impending flood. It warned of the wrath of God to come. Enoch was one of the first prophets. Enoch walked with God in the midst of a twisted generation. We see this really from Enoch all the way to Noah, that they lived in a rather perverse world. It's quite clear from passages like, like uh, Genesis 5 and Genesis 6, the perversity of the surrounding world, that there was a unique light that was taking place in Enoch and also in Noah, that they were righteous men in a twisted and wicked generation because they looked forward to the promises by faith. It's it, rather interesting. We could take for perspective that Enoch would have, as a prophet, seen and beheld the glory of the Lord, in particularly the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming, and even conveyed those messages to his children and his children's children. Enoch was a prophet, and he was a prophet in the midst of a twisted generation. Enoch had also a rather unique existence and end, if we can even use the term end. Genesis 5, 21 through 24 says this, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch is one of the two men that have a rather unique conclusion to their earthly life. Seemingly, what takes place is Enoch is brought out of that generation and translated directly into the presence of God. Again, this does not mean that Enoch was righteous in and of himself. It simply means that God desired to take him out of that generation and bring him home earlier. That being said, from where was Jude citing? This is a really important question as we consider the book of Jude altogether. 
Why was Jude citing this as prophecy? And he does cite it specifically as prophecy. Don't misunderstand. We're not saying that, that Enoch said something that happened to be true. We're saying, based upon this text, that Enoch actually did make a prophetic word. So there's two ways that we can look at this particular section. We can say, first off, and both of these are, I think, well within the realm of orthodoxy, but first, he was possibly citing Jewish oral tradition. So the prophecy that's mentioned here where it says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That particular prophecy is either a citation of oral tradition that Jude would have been well familiar with. We really already see this taking place in Jude's writing. He seems to rely heavily upon that as is, or it is taken from a non-canonical book, First Enoch, where it is cited there as well. Now, this does lead to the question, and many have made the argument, well, if there's a citation from First Enoch in the book of Jude, shouldn't we then take all of First Enoch to be sacred scripture? Well, the basic argument is that if it's cited, therefore it should be in the pages of Holy Writ altogether, not in parts, but in whole. The problem with this is Paul often cites individuals who by no means were aiming to write something that was God-inspired. For instance, Paul cites a poet, Eratus, in Acts 17. We do not take all of the poet's writings. Further, Paul cites Epin. Epimenides in Titus 1.12. It is not uncommon for biblical writers to take extra biblical content and bring it into the pages of scripture. But we must understand that what we find in the book of Jude is certainly scripture, meaning that what the prophecy is actually conveying must be enshrined as sacred, as infallible, as actually the word of God. And so without question, though we gladly say that Enoch in and of itself is not to be canonized, we gladly say that based upon the fact that Jude includes it inside of his book, that this is a true prophecy that ultimately we should take to the bank. Either way, we have this prophecy enshrined here as sacred scripture. That being the case, we need to examine it. So what then did Enoch see? Well, what Enoch saw was something that is commonly referred to as the great day, the last day, or the day of the Lord. He's actually already made reference to this in Jude 6. He says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, that even then Jude is anticipating the great day where the angels themselves will be judged as well. And so inside of the mind of Jude, he's building the case and really driving forward his book with the concept of these wicked individuals will face judgment now or at the great day. And that really is the primary purpose of Jude including this section. So why is this included in Jude altogether? Because these individuals, notice what it says in verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, meaning that Enoch had in mind these wicked men. That is not so much to say that the very men that Jude is writing about, but the men who are perverse and the men who warred against the church, those wicked individuals are the ones that Enoch had in mind as he prophesied about this day of the Lord. So with that all being said, let's examine the prophecy in and of itself. So what then was the substance of this prophecy? First, 
It is Christ who comes on that great day. Notice what it says in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. A side note really quickly. It is interesting that as Enoch is making this prophecy, he's not making it as if he's saying that this will be something that comes. Enoch is ultimately seeing it as it is. Enoch is beholding in the truest sense, the Lord Jesus Christ coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. What a unique vision to be given before the flood ever came. The prophecies of the Lord's first and second coming were written, were already laid out and made clear before even the first flood. What a unique privilege that Enoch had to see and to behold this, not in something that he's foretelling, but in something that he himself, as a prophet of God, is seeing. His pronouncement of behold is essentially saying, see what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the Lord come in glory. I'm seeing him come as a judge of all the earth with ten thousands of his holy ones. And the word 10,000s there, by the way, does not mean a specific 10,000s. It essentially is the same language that you see in Revelation when it speaks of the myriads of myriads around the throne. It is a great cloud of witnesses, as it were. So Christ comes on that great day. How does Christ come then? First, I want to make clear, Christ does not come as a failed priest. When you look at the book of Hebrews, you'll notice as it transitions from Hebrews 9 to Hebrews 10, the presupposition is that priests would have to come year after year after year to make sacrifices, to make atonement. It is not so with our Lord. When he came the first time, he came to make atonement for sins and he perfectly completed that work. When the Lord Jesus comes in his second advent, he does not come to make another sacrifice. That's been finished. He comes as a perfect priest who has redeemed a people perfectly. We must not see the Lord's coming in his second advent as a continuation of his priestly ministry. Most certainly, he is the eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. But when he returns for round two, he is not coming to make sacrifice for sin because the sacrifice that he made was once and for all. Because it was sufficient, it was complete. He doesn't come as a failed priest to offer yet another sacrifice. This is somewhat parallel to the concept that the priest in the order of Levi would have to come all the always year after year after year. Christ in his second advent need not come again to make purification for sins. He's completed that work. He doesn't come to speak yet again as a prophet. He is the final word. It is not as though he is bringing us new revelation. As a matter of fact, he's given us all that we need for life and godliness. And he himself being the living word does not come for a new period of revelation. He's given all that which is necessary. He does not come again as a failed priest needing to make another sacrifice. He does not come as an insufficient prophet to further communicate that which he forgot in his first advent. He comes as a triumphant king. And this is very important for our understanding of this day of glory. We are not looking in the simple sense as one who is meek and mild on round two. We are looking at the lion of the tribe of Judah. When he returns, he returns as a man of war. He returns as a fierce judge and king. And that is how we must view him, saints. Certainly, we are always rejoicing in his priestly ministry. We are always rejoicing in his prophetic ministry. But saints, we need to be reminded that he has established a kingdom of which we are a part. And when he returns, he returns as a triumphant king. Christ, the triumphant king, comes crowned with glory and splendor. You have to wonder what Enoch saw there. Radiant, majestic king of glory. It is a sad thing when we consider the day of the Lord and we do not pause for a minute to consider the Lord of that day. He is not meek and mild. He is filled with glory and splendor and majesty. 
as such the world has never seen nor will ever see. It is only here that we see the pinnacle of glory when the King of glory returns with all of his majesty to make known that glory. I find it to be a moment that we should meditate upon on the regular. Saints, to consider this King crowned with many crowns, many diadems upon his head, that this is the King of glory. He has exercised dominion all throughout the age since his ascension. Ever since that moment, he has been making his enemies his footstool. And this is a wonderful and glorious truth for the church, that Christ is conquering, that Christ is bringing victory. And as we consider these things, we must see not a defeated king, but a crowned king, one who is filled with glory and splendor and majesty. As it were, he comes not only crowned with glory and splendor. He comes possessing all authority and in heaven and on earth. No one will kick against the goads in this day. When Christ comes, he comes with all authority in heaven and on earth. And though men may curse him now in that day, their mouths will be stopped and their only words will be Jesus is Lord. The reality is that we look forward to this day because Christ is the triumphant king, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that he is the king, the savior, and the judge. And as we look forward to this day, we look to one who is not coming that he might get some authority, but he comes in all authority. He is the all authoritative king of glory. Finally, Christ, the triumphant king, comes to place the final enemies underneath his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 is abundantly helpful. We study this blessed section of scripture dealing with the bodily resurrection. You'll notice that as you work through it, you'll see that sin and death seem to be the final enemies. And in this day when he returns, saints, they will be made his footstool. No longer, saints, will you taste sin in your mouth after this day. No longer will death take from you a loved one or capture you yourself because Christ has made sin and death his footstool. It is eradicated altogether. This is the king of glory. This is who Enoch saw. And you imagine thousands and thousands of years ago, as Enoch is seeing this, he's seeing the second coming of our Lord. What great hope that created in his soul. And so we see that this is the triumphant king coming. But we not only see that the triumphant king is coming, we see this rather unique language in verse 14. It says this, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. Again, that's making reference to myriads of myriads, a number, or a, a multitude without number. Who are these individuals that are being considered here? So first, I think it's quite clear and reasonable to presume that the angelic beings are in view here, that there are angelic beings that will come with him. We see this all throughout the scripture. And even in Hebrews, it makes reference to his ministers. He makes the angels his ministers of flaming fire, that we see this concept of the angelic beings being means by which God judges. We also see that the angelic beings are, are, are instruments, if you will, to gather the elect. So we can safely say that the angelic beings are in view here, but I think that there is more in view. And I think that's really laid out from the fact that the word angels isn't actually the word that Jude uses here. Instead, he uses a word that denotes his holy ones. He's making reference to more, I'm convinced, than the angelic beings. I'm convinced that he is making reference to his church. First Thessalonians, I think, lays this out for us full well. So not only are the angelic beings in view in Jude 14, but it seems to be that the saints, and I would argue all of the saints, are in view as well. Listen to what First Thessalonians 3.13 says. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You'll notice the correlation here that at his coming, at the coming of the glorious king, coming with him will be all his saints. I am not convinced that we need to consider that only from the perspective of those saints who have previously gone before, primarily because at this moment, all will be raised and all will be glorified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, I think continues this train. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these sayings. Perhaps it is that you would say that these seem to be different days. Well, I only read one resurrection that takes place in the pages of Holy Scripture. That being said, it seems as though that what takes place in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is the very day of the Lord where the dead in Christ will rise and we who are living will be brought up with him in the air. I am convinced that what you see in Jude 14 and 15 is this great day where all of the saints, all of the holy ones will come with Christ in judgment of the world. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 goes further. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So the basic understanding of this, in my view, is to say that on this great day, all of the saints of God pass and present will go with the king in the air and then there will be conquest of this earth. He has not forgotten his saints, brothers and sisters. When we say that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, we mean it. Thomas Manton, I think, beautifully says it this way. At Christ's appearance, his train will be made up of a multitude of saints and holy angels. When they appear together in that great rendezvous, they will be those numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000s. Oh, what a sweet day it will be to have all the church gathered to behold Christ the King. And he will have them there to see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor. Now, not only does the Lord Jesus come, not only does he come with his saints, he comes to execute judgment and to convict the ungodly. First, do not be surprised. Saints, we should never be surprised at the fact that Christ comes in judgment. Not only should we not be surprised, it's quite clear that throughout Scripture, this is typified. It's made clear to us. First of all, you can even think of the days briefly after Enoch's, the flood. Genesis 6, 7 through 8, we see the Lord say this in regard to actually coming in judgment. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord comes in judgment. And in this particular case, he comes in judgment with water. But not only do we see that in the flood, we also see it in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which Jude has already meditated upon. Genesis 19, 24 through 25 says this, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. We already know from the book of Jude that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. They're there to teach us that God really does come to judge. Nineveh, Nahum 2.13 makes it really clear. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. We know from the pages of scripture and even the historical record that after this great day in Nineveh, Nineveh ceases to be heard from. 
that God enacts perfect justice against them. And even then, we're given a sign in the pages of the New Testament to look forward to. Matthew 24, 1 through 2 says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is making reference quite clearly to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is pronounced over and over and over again, saints, that our God is a consuming fire. We should never be surprised when He acts accordingly. When He comes to execute judgment in the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah in Nineveh in the fall of Jerusalem, there should not be question marks above our head. We should say, behold, the King of glory. Now, that being the case, not being surprised by it, we need to understand this particular day. Who is he coming against? Who is he coming to judge and convict? Well, the text is really clear with the refrain of language. Perhaps you'll hear it as I read it. To execute judgment, verse 15, on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Perhaps you notice the refrain. His premise is rather simple. He's saying that the ungodly, those wicked men, is who he is coming against on that day of dread. Now, let's build this out for a minute because I think there's really four ways that we can understand the ungodlies that are laid out here. First, it is their essence. He calls them ungodly. He's saying, this is what you are. You are ungodly. And as he says this, we can simply say that this is their essence. They are of their father, Adam. That is to say that they are dead. Don't demean the fall. Adam didn't trip in the garden. Adam fell into death. And every single individual who is in Adam is a wicked individual who is dead in their trespasses and sins. And we need not undermine that. It is quite clear in the pages of Scripture, saints. We can also be reminded of the fact that this is what we once were. But praise be to God, we are no longer in our father, Adam, but we are in our new federal head, Christ, our Lord. They are of their father Adam's they are of their father Adam dead but not only are they of their father Adam they are also of their father the devil. We must not undermine this either. We must be quick to say that there are those who are wicked that are enslaved that are ensnared and that these individuals these ungodly men that are mentioned in Jude are of their father the devil. That is to say that they are liars and murderers. That is exactly what the scripture has to say about men who are of their father, the devil. They are liars and they are murderers. The very essence of the unregenerate is that they are ungodly of their father, Adam, dead and of their father, Satan, liars and murderers. This is the true natural state of man. Thus, we should not be surprised when their conduct is in line with their lineage. They live their life clearly flowing out of their essence, who they are, dead in their trespasses and sins, liars and murderers. But not only do we see this as innate within their core, we also understand that their works correspond with their very essence. Isaiah 59, six through seven, this is the same verse that we find cited in Romans chapter three. It says this, their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and ruin are in their high ways. This is the deeds of the ungodly. And perhaps it is you would say to me in the moment, ah, but it does not seem that their works are so wicked as these laid out in Isaiah. Saints, we do well to study the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps it is that you think, ah, they are not murderers. Saints, they not only hate the church, they hate the God of the church. And you say, ah, they do not seem to be so adulterous. We live in the most pornographic culture that has ever existed. They say, we do not pervert the truth. Are you serious? We live to pervert the truth. 
that these men, these ungodly, wicked men are actively working out their ungodliness in society. They are forecasting and laying out their sin to the corruption of all around. And not only, just for a side note for a moment, it's not just that their works are evil, they desire to capture the very church of God and bring them into that very same wicked works. We call this perverse and we must never look at the ungodly and say, oh, it doesn't seem as bad as it says in the pages of scripture. Saints, it's worse. No, their works are evil and their motives. Their motives are quite clear. It makes reference to this again. Look at verse 15. On all to convict the, and, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, going to the very motive of the heart in their committing of such trespasses. Philippians 3.19, I think, lays out to us their motives. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. That basically all of this is to say that they live aiming to satisfy an insatiable appetite for sin. Their God, is their, ba- their, their God is their belly. They will always be wanting more. And as they are always wanting more, we know full well that God wages war against these individuals by the simple phrase that we find in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction. Now, finally, their words. Psalm 73.9, I think, beautifully puts it this, puts it this way. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts the earth. It makes me think of the beast in Revelation that utters blasphemies all the day long. Blasphemies against heaven, blasphemies against Christ, saints. This is the essence of the men that God Christ comes to war against, to execute judgment against. Now, what is meant by, let's carry that forward, because we have that he comes to execute judgment. We also have this other phrase that is a rather unique one. And it essentially says that he comes to execute judgment and then to convict all the ungodly. So first, what is meant by execute judgment? First, Christ comes as the king and the judge. Hear me, listen to the pages of scripture, John 5, 22 through 23. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. This means that as you turn to Revelation 20 and you see him who is seated on the throne that is opening books and judges, you should instantly insert there the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the judge of all the earth. Further, not only do we understand that Christ comes as the king and the judge to actually execute judgment, he comes as an avenger. And this is vitally important for our understanding of Christ's coming. Christ comes to enact vengeance. We must not miss this. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9 shouts this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Christ comes to judge. And hear me, in this moment that we are pondering today, we say the day of salvation has come uniquely for the church and it is closed for the ungodly. This is a sobering reality, but he is not slow, he is patient. And the reality is that as we even consider this moment for for just a brief second, we need to be reminded what a great gospel we have that saved from the wrath that is presently resting upon us and the wrath that is to come. Because saints, the reason that you will not be participating in this judgment is because Christ was judged for you. 
And so we think of this day and we do see that Christ comes to execute judgment. He comes as an avenger and he comes not only as an avenger to execute justice, but we also see that he comes to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, meaning that he's not simply gonna come and render a judgment based upon what he already knows, based upon their evil deeds, but instead he comes to expose them, to make it clear, to convince as it were the whole world that these individuals, even the individuals being condemned, that they deserve the justice of God. Listen to John 3, 19 through 20 for just a moment. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, making reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The basic presupposition of this text is to say that those who are wicked, the ungodly, will not come to Christ because if they come to Christ, their works will actually be exposed. Not only their deeds, their motives, their essence, their words, all of these things will be laid bare. Hebrews 4.13, I think, continues this thread. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So hear me, if you stand here today as an unbeliever, you may flee from the light today, but you will not be able to escape it forever. There will be a day where you stand before the radiant light of Christ. All of your deeds will be laid bare and you will receive the recompense for your actions. There is a great day coming. There is no way that any human being, past, present, or future, living or dead, will escape the judgment of God. He will convict all the ungodly of their deeds. He will expose the very purposes of their heart, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. It says this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart, the very purposes of the heart laid bare. I think that even causes the church to tremble. That the reality is that no hidden purpose will stay hidden, that Christ will expose it all. He will lay it bare. Finally, he will give them what they have earned. Romans 2, 4 through 8 says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed the very day that we are speaking of. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, I've never, met, I've never met a man other than Jesus that did that. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, there, obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury." Christ will give them what they have earned. But if I could make an appeal for a moment. First, today is still the day of salvation. And if you sit here today and you are fearing and trembling before this great day, not because you long to see the king, but because you fear the judge, I would plead with you, run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Because the reality is, saints, that if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've already been judged. This day isn't for you. The judgment that you incurred took place at the cross of Christ. He bore your wrath, meaning that everything that we have read through, everything that we have considered in this day of dread, brothers and sisters, Christ drank that cup 2,000 years ago. When he was nailed to the tree, he canceled the record of debt, meaning that all of these judgments, these have already been done for us. They were laid bare. Our sins laid bare at the cross of Christ and Christ drank the cup of God's wrath. 
But if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would appeal to you for just a moment from the words of Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4, which is essentially the thesis statement of the book of Romans. Listen to what it says, because I I want you to be sobered by this vision before we go into the joys that the church has as we consider this. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4, and if you read the book of Habakkuk, you know that a great destruction is coming. He says, I'm going to do something in your day that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. If you hear that quoted about anything other than destruction, you're way out of context. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4 says this, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Listen to this. But the righteous will live by faith. How will the righteous live by faith in the days of Habakkuk? They will read the pages of Habakkuk and they will say that they must flee the city. In our day, we understand based upon Paul's understanding of Habakkuk that the only way to flee from this wrath is to flee unto Christ. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, same, same text in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. The reality is the whole premise of the book of Romans is run to Jesus. The whole concept is to say, here's a beautiful gospel that will save you from the wrath to come. And it is only in fleeing to Christ that you might actually be free. You say you're a great sinner. I would remind you that we have a wonderful savior, that there is no sin that you have ever committed that Christ's blood cannot atone for. Should you flee to him, you will find a perfect savior for this day and that day. And so we say, flee to Christ. In him is the forgiveness of sins, the remissions of sin. He is the better priest, the better prophet, the better king. And as he has interceded for all the church of God, he is the perfect intercessor that no one questions what he has accomplished. He is ever living to mediate for us and his mediation will certainly see us home. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would appeal to you this day, flee to him because only the righteous will live by faith and the righteous flee to Christ based upon his finished work. It's the only means of fleeing from the wrath to come. There is no secondary way. Should you stand in that day and say, ah, I'm not ungodly. Hear me, hear me. The omniscient eye of God will search through every moment of your life, not just your actions, not just your deeds, but your very motives. And let's just say that you believe you're a little better than the guy next to you. Should he find one sin, his wrath will rest on you forever. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ for the saving of your own souls and the glory of his name because he's worthy of worship and praise and honor. And so the pastoral appeal for the unbeliever is first and foremost, flee to Christ. But if I could make a secondary pastoral appeal in light of this to the Christian, know that the only reason you don't share in this day of dread is because Christ undertook it for you. Now, that being the case, how do we as the saints of God see this day? And I will tell you, it is perhaps one of the most unique separations. This is where we so clearly divide from the world based upon who we are in Christ. Because we are the people who go on confessing, do we not? That we're ungodly and that we sin and that we rebel against God, even in our regenerate states, that we are not made perfect yet. There's still frailty and wickedness in us. It's the reason that when you struggle when you struggle with the assurance of your salvation and you're looking at self, you'll find no confidence in the examination of self. You must always be looking to Christ. There you'll find confidence. There you'll rest knowing that it's not a day of dread for you, but a day of glory. 
And so as we look at the day of glory, not considering it a day of dread, dread for the unbeliever, but glory for the Christian, and more importantly, glory for the king, we must understand a few things about this day. We must anticipate this day, not dread it, because it is for this day we await with eager anticipation. Saints, this is the day you see your king. Hear me when I say this, that all the anticipation you've ever thought, all the desires that you've had for deeper fellowship with Christ, in this moment, there will be no greater desires because all will be given unto you. That you will see him as he is, you will see your king high and lifted up. And in this moment, brothers and sisters, I don't even need to go further, but to say this, the day we see our king is a day of glory. We delight and rejoice in that. It is, the, it is a mirror image of a day a groom awaits his bride and the doors are open. This is what we long for in an even deeper sense. First Peter 1.13 tells us this, therefore preparing your minds for actions and being sober minded, set your hope fully. I love that word, fully. It is not saying that you get to have various baskets to put your hope in. It's telling you, put all your hope in this day. And this is the day. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that glorious revealing of our true God, true man coming as Christ the King. Set your hope fully on this day. Further, it is in this day that we will be saved. Saints, we go on professing that we are saved that we have been justified by faith through Christ and through Christ alone. We have done nothing to, to, to attribute or to give to our salvation. Christ has perfectly provided it. We are right to say that we are saved and we are also right to say that we will be saved. Listen to what the text says in Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. Loud, beautiful text. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that is his church, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin because he's not a failed priest, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I hope that the church is found eagerly waiting for him because it's on that day where we will go on confessing, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I am finally saved. That there is no more salvation to be given unto me. I will dwell eternally with my king. My body has been raised, uncorruptible, imperishable, undefiled, and I will live forever with him. We have been saved on this great day. So we anticipate it, longing for it to come, that the old man may be completely done away with and the new man might be completely and totally vivified and glorified. So we look forward and anticipate this day because in this day we will be saved. We anticipate this day because from this point forth, sin and death will be no more. I to read to you five verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin and death gone. If there is not an appropriate hatred of this remnant of sin that is left in us, we will not eagerly await this day appropriately. Do you understand the 
wickedness of sin. To see our Lord crucified on the tree for it, God has made a public pronouncement of what he thinks of sin. And we, his saints, who are called to be holy in this world, we do still struggle with it. And by the Spirit, hear me, we will be victorious. But I pray each and every day we grow in hatred of sin. And not only grow in hatred of sin, but we grow in hatred of death. And hear me, I'm not making reference first and foremost to the drawing of our last breath. I'm talking about separation from our Savior. That we are no longer, that no longer will death take us and steal us away from Him because He has conquered it all together. Instead, Him being the resurrection and the life brings us unto Him to live unfettered communion with Him. And we rejoice. We look forward to this day because in this day, sin and death will be no more. From this day forward, saint, if this day comes at noon, you've committed your very last sin at 11.59. Further, it is from this moment forth that we will dwell with him. John 14, one through three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. To dwell with the King of glory, to rest in his courts, to be gathered in that holy assembly, the assembly of the firstborn, to sing holy, holy, holy. From this point forth, that is our fate. We will live with him, dwell with him, delight in him, feel the warmth of his rays of light upon our face and always be comforted by such a glorious place and fellowship. And not only, even for a moment aside, not only will we dwell forever with our king, we will dwell forever with the saints. What a joyful thing we do each Lord's day when we gather to worship in the gathering of the saints. In that day, we are not gathered as a local church. We are gathered as the assembly of the firstborn. Every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne praising the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and dominion. Finally, it is from that moment forth that we will be like him. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. It's a pronouncement of who we are today if we be in Christ. And yet it goes further. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We'll be like him. One of the great hopes of the Christian is the bodily resurrection. One of the great hopes of the Christian is not only bodily resurrection in the sense that this body will live forever, but instead this body will live forever glorified, incapable of sinning and rebelling against our God. When we consider this blessed thought that we will be like him as we see him, saints, what's saying, what it's ultimately communicating to us is that our salvation will be made complete. And brothers and sisters, this is a day of glory. We should anticipate and long for this day. And if there's anything that would say, oh Lord, do not bring this day to fruition. Perhaps it is that there is an idol that ultimately needs to be laid waste to. I'm so sick of hearing Christians, ah, but I want this. No, saints, we want Christ. We want to delight in him. We want to be in his presence. We want to be thrilled and awed by his beauty. And as we long for that heavenly place, it loosens our grip here below. Saints, we should long for the day of glory. And again, we understand that in this epistle, what's ultimately being communicated is not the perspective of the day of glory, but the day of dread. If you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me, today is still the day of salvation. You can still flee to Christ and find in him a perfect savior. And if you do, 
instantly the day of dread turns to a day of glory as it has for all the church of God. Let's pray together.